good to be together in the house of the Lord and uh, to be able to be in his presence, to be with one another, and to hear the reading and the preaching of the word. And so to that end, if you would please open your Bibles to Psalm 42, Psalm 42, and uh, <clears throat> this morning's message will cover both Psalms 42 and Psalm 43. Because if, as you note, for example, there's a refrain that goes throughout both, whereas in verse 11 of Psalm 42, it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then at the end of verse uh, 5 of Psalm 43, we see the same refrain, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? In other words, these two psalms are bound together by this refrain, and so that's why we want to take them together. So uh, with that being said, let's, uh, let's begin reading in Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? <clears throat> Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Uh, may God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks that you are a God of light, that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of love. You continually shine forth the light of truth upon our path. You continually bathe us in the mercy that you have given us in Christ. And, O oh Lord, you continually show your love to us in that while we were sinners, you sent your Son to die for us, that we might know of the forgiveness of our sins, that we might know of salvation, and that we might eternally know of your love. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would make these truths ever 
present to us, uh, even now, as we contemplate your word, that you would plant these truths deep within our hearts and that you would cause them to grow by watering them with your Holy Spirit, that they would produce much fruit unto your glory and uh, your praise. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. It's easy to say, I think, that despair can be an overwhelming burden upon our souls. People can look at their lives, look at their circumstances, and they can seemingly dangle by the edge and the end of the rope. And so many people in the world will say, well, when you reach the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. But what happens... What happens if you feel as if you do not even have the strength to tie a knot and you fear that you may fall off the end of your rope? Well, in the ancient world, the great philosopher Plato once said that suicide was something that was shameful and that for anyone who killed themselves, they should be buried in an unmarked grave because of the shamefulness of the act though he believed there might be some legitimate exceptions to this rule. One, for example, in which if someone suffered great personal tragedy, it might in those circumstances be a legitimate, uh, a legitimate uh, action. And so in this vein, I cannot help but think of Job's personal misfortune and the words of his wife who said in Job chapter 2 verse 9, Why don't you just curse God and die? Look at the abject misery of your life. Look at the calamity that has fallen upon you. What point is there to go on living? And so despair can be great. And the weight of the calamity as it presses down upon us can be severe So much so that we might think, okay, maybe ending my life really is the only option that I have. Well, 20th century French philosopher Albert Camus believed that suicide might certainly be tempting because he said that it seemed to offer an illusory freedom uh, from the absurdity of life. But in the end, he believed that even in the face of great tragedy, or even in the face of difficulty, like Sisyphus, we just simply have to heroically uh, stand against the tide of the trial, and we have to push our rock up the hill endlessly as it rolls back down and pushing it back up. In other words, in the face of tragedy, we heroically press on. Well, I think there's something of this type of situation here before the psalmist's life in this personal lament that we have seen here in chapters 42 and 43. He was undoubtedly filled with despair. And like many of us, when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, uh, we start talking to ourselves. And we start asking ourselves questions. What am I doing? Why do I feel this way? And then not only talking to ourselves, but perhaps we even begin talking out loud in prayer to God. No longer are our prayers the quiet, uh, silent utterances in the presence of God, but rather we become vocal. We express despair. We 
give voice to our doubts and our questions. Oh God, where are you? Where are you? But unlike Plato, the psalmist does not say that ending his life is an option. And neither does he opt for Camus' situation simply to say, stand strong against the tide of the trial, be the hero. You know, in the one case, to end one's life is to say no to God, and it's to say, I will handle this my way, regardless of what you call me to. And on the other hand, to try to stand heroically against the tide is to simply say, I don't need you, God. I'll do this on my own. I'll do it my way. And instead, what the psalmist does is he looks beyond the walls of his soul to someone greater. He looks ultimately to the only one in whom he can take shelter. He looks only ultimately to the mighty wings of Christ, beneath whose wings he can take shelter, and he can find hope even in the midst of great difficulty and trial. And so that's what I want us to see, is that ultimately in the face of despair, or we can put it in the terms of the psalmist, when we thirst, when we thirst and we hunger for the mercy and grace of Christ, it is only to Christ to whom we can turn. It is only him from whom we can find satisfaction, for whom uh, we can find the water of grace for whom we can find the food of salvation. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us first to consider what the psalmist has to say about thirsting for God. Then second, what he has to say about being overwhelmed by despair. And then third and finally, we want to look to see as he turns to Christ as the only one who can give him hope in the face of his trial and despair. So first, let's look at what he has to say about thirsting for God, in that the psalmist opens with some words that I believe that are very familiar to us. I can remember singing, for example, when I was in church as a youth, I can remember singing a praise chorus that used these very words in verse 1 of Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now, the 17th century metrical version of this psalm gives us the impression that the deer has been running as as pants the heart for cooling streams when heated in the chase. You know, if you've ever done running, whether as a young person or as an older person, and you get parched because you've been running uh, and you, you, you thirst... That's the image that I think that the 17th century psalmist uh, or 17th century uh, psalm wants us to see in terms of this metrical psalm. But I don't think that it's exhaustion that it's in view. I don't think that the deer is has been running and therefore is parched. Rather, I think it's a situation of uh, drought. In other words, there's a shortage of water, and the deer is looking everywhere for something to quench his thirst. He's looking for a stream of water. He's looking for some sort of source of water that will quench his thirst. And so he's exhausted. There's no water to be found. 
You can imagine the heat of the day would be bearing down upon him. And so for some unknown reason, we can say that the psalmist has been separated from the abundant presence of God and the grace and the mercy of God. We don't know if he was exiled from the land. We don't know, for example, if perhaps he was stricken with some sort of serious illness that would have put him on his bed so that he was unable to rise and unable to go to the temple. Remember at this point in the history of God's redemption that essentially God's presence was located chiefly in the temple. It is not as it is in our day where God's presence is wherever two or three are gathered in his name. And so for some reason, we don't know, the psalmist is distant. He's distant from the Lord. And he's thirsting for God. And his enemies taunt him, verse 3, where is your God? You've said all of these wonderful things about God, and yet we can see you suffering Where is he now? Where is he? These words, where is your God, strike me as being very similar to the words of Job's wife when he was in the depths of his suffering. Curse God and die. That was another way of saying, where is he? He certainly isn't here. And we know of his emotional distress because again in verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. He was distraught. He was weeping, unceasingly so. And so I think in this particular case, it's natural that the psalmist would go into the archives of his mind to remember better times. And we see this in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go to the, with the throng <coughs> and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. How often do we do this? You know, it's like uh, when I was laid up in bed recently, I, I would remember, boy, I, I can't wait to get back to when I can go back to exercising and running. I couldn't run. How many of us, if we're bedridden, remember earlier times uh, when we had better health and we could do the things that we long to do at the moment? Well, in this particular case, that's what the psalmist does. His mind goes back to the time when he could go with a throng of worshipers to the temple, where he could sing God's praises, where he could keep the festival. In other words, he was remembering times of joy. And yet, these fond memories aren't enough to satisfy his longing and his his sense of abandonment, as he says there in verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And so the psalmist reaches further and deeper into his memory to look for God. He says, oh, Lord, why am I cast down? Why, O oh soul, are you cast down within me? And he says there at the end of, at the middle of verse 5, hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation and my God. So these memories of God's faithfulness in the past give him hope in the present 
and it spurs him on to say, have hope. God has been faithful. He will be faithful yet. He says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Notice what he's doing is he's, in a sense, if even only in his mind's eye, he's taking a geographic survey of the land of promise. The land of Jordan, why is that significant? Because it's where the people crossed over into the promised land. When God parted the waters of the Jordan River and he brought them faithfully as he promised into the land. Why does he invoke Mount Hermon and Mount Miser? Mount Miser lies a little bit lower than Mount Hermon and it's near the border of Israel and Syria and it is one of the highest peaks in the area. So much so that what he is doing is he's ascending to one of the highest peaks, if only in his mind's eye, so that he can lay survey of the entire promised land as it lies before him and he can remember You have been faithful in the past, O Lord. I know you will be faithful to me in the present. How important is it for us to survey God's faithfulness in the past? When we find ourselves in the depths of despair, I think one of the first places to which we must turn is to the word of God so that we can survey God's faithfulness throughout the ages whether it's his faithfulness to Adam and Eve when he promised them that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, whether it's his promise to Abraham that your seed will inherit this land, whether it's to Isaac, whether it's to Jacob, whether it's to Joseph as he was in despair in the midst of his enslavement and in his imprisonment when he had been unjustly sold into slavery, whether it was to the people of Israel as he promised to give them the land. How many times has God delivered his people in the book of Judges? How many times did he deliver David? How many times did he fulfill his promises to Solomon? And of course, how many times has he been faithful to his promises in Christ, in whom all uh, his promises are yea and amen, as Paul says. We need to survey all of God's faithfulness in the past. That it would fill us with hope. Because ultimately, I think what what the psalmist is aware of is he's aware of the truth that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, in the depths of his despair, he remembers God's covenant faithfulness to him. And and Jesus speaks of this when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If we thirst for righteousness, if we hunger for it, our Heavenly Father will feed us. He will satisfy us. He will sate our hunger and our thirst. Even if it seems as if things are going from bad to worse. Which brings us to our second point. Where the psalmist is overwhelmed with despair. I think nothing 
Nothing can be more discouraging than thinking that I see light at the end of the tunnel. I think my trial is over. I think my despair may come to an end only to find out that the light of the end of the tunnel isn't a light, but it's a train and it's bearing down upon you. You know, it's like these these last few uh, weeks have been, you know, God has been impressing this upon me. It's like I had one two-week illness only to be followed up with another three-week illness back to back. Just when I thought that my, my illnesses were over, it extended for another three weeks. And even to this day, this very morning, I was praying, oh, Lord, please sustain my voice. It still isn't 100%, and I'm worried. I got a lot of teaching and preaching to do. And so you think, Lord, this needs to stop. You know, we're on the train of God's providence and we keep on ringing the buzzer. uh, Please let me off. I'm ready for the ride to be done. And so, yeah, the psalmist surveys God's faithfulness. He surveys the promised land and he has fond memories of worship. But at the same time, he feels as if he's drowning. Look at verse seven. Deep calls to deep. And notice the pronouns here at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You know, it's like I've I've told this story before, but it bears brief repetition that years ago when I was learning how to surf in California, uh, and I'm not very good, so don't think much of it. But as I was learning how to surf, there was one January morning where we were surfing. And you go surfing in January because the waves are better and they're bigger, which that's probably code for I'm a dummy for doing it when the waves are bigger. Right? It only means I'm going to be under the water more than on top of it. And I can remember being tossed one time and being held under. And you get into the foamy water. And, and what happens is that you don't quite have enough water to be able to push down so that you can go to the surface. But you don't also have enough air so that you can breathe. And my friend told me in this, he said, if that happens... Just go limp and wait for the water to bring you to the surface. You'll you'll come to the surface. The problem is, is that when you're waiting to go limp, you want to breathe really badly. And you have to be calm because you're like, okay, Lord, I'm ready to breathe. I'm ready to breathe. And I got held under for what seemed like 30 seconds. It was probably only five But after five, I was like, I want air. I want out of the water. And when I finally got out of the water, I waved to my friend and said, I'm done. (laughs) I'm going to sit on the shore. And I sat there on the shore and shivered and gave, gave thanks for air because I was breathing and I could breathe. And I suspect that's the way that the psalmist felt. God's breakers were crashing down upon him and he didn't have a chance to catch his breath. 
But notice in all of this where he lays the onus of his situation. He says that these are your waterfalls. They're your breakers. Your waves have gone over me. So he's saying, oh Lord, he's giving utterance to that old saying that we all know, when it rains, it pours. But at the same time, he's saying, oh Lord, why, why, why are you seemingly drowning me? I don't know if I can take any more. I don't know if I can take any more. I think this is the psalmist's way of saying, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the end of my rope. But notice in verse 9, again here the pronouns are so important. I say to God, my rock. He doesn't take on an accusatory tone. He doesn't say, I hate you. He doesn't say, you know, you're terrible to me. You don't love me. Even when it seems as if God himself is the cause of his drowning and of his despair, he still says, I say to God, my rock. These are the words, I think, that essentially fill Christ's mouth upon the cross. When there, in the depths of his own despair and suffering, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He still says, My God. That's why that phrase, and I've tried to teach this to my children because they're surrounded by it, by their peers. When someone says, Oh, my God. It's not supposed to be a a flippant thing said as an exclamation point at the end of a sentence, but rather it's a cry of despair to our covenant Lord when out of the depths of our sufferings we know that he's the only one who can answer. And so in the midst of his despair, he says, I said to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Again, he hears the taunts of the people around him in verse 10. Where's your God? I think in these words, I hear the taunts that were cascading down upon Jesus. He claimed to be God. Why doesn't he cast himself down now from the, take himself down now from the cross? Quiet, we think he's crying for Elijah. Maybe Elijah will come. You said you would rebuild the temple in three days. And so the psalmist ends his cry in chapter 42, verse 11, when he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Do you hear what he's saying? And notice this is the second time he repeats that refrain. When there's a sense in which he preaches to his own soul, why are you in turmoil? Why are you cast down? He says, hope in God. I know God's faithfulness in the past 
will give me a roadmap to the present. And I know I will again praise God. I will have reason to rejoice because he is my salvation and he is my God. You know, one of the things in my personal life that I find most challenging is either because of, 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 of you know, the inf- you know, sometimes the, the insomnia that I struggle with. I struggle with insomnia. I just wake up in the middle of the night and I cannot get back to sleep. Or recently with, with my illness, uh, either because of medication, you know, you get a steroid shot, it wires you and you're wide awake all night long. Or because of pain or whatever the case is, you know, you watch the hours tick by. And you watch the clock, which is probably reason why I should listen to my wife and I shouldn't keep a clock by my bed so I don't know what time it is, right? You know, but you see the clock go by and you're like, well, that's one o'clock. Well, there's two o'clock. I'm still wide awake, Lord. Why can't I sleep? There's three o'clock, Lord. I've got the day coming and I got a lot to do. I can't possibly know how I'm going to get through this day. There's four o'clock. And the one thing that I actually look forward to is when the night is done. When I can stop the wrestling and I can stop the worrying and say, well, it's morning. It's time to get up. Sleep or no sleep. Here's the day. Let's go. But the way I try to think about that is I try to think about that from the perspective of Scripture, from this vantage point. You ever notice in the Genesis narrative that the day begins with darkness and it ends with light? It was evening and it was morning. The second day it was evening and it was morning. The third day it was evening and it was morning. And I think it is God's discreet and subtle way of saying light always comes after darkness. Hope always comes after the, in the face of despair. Mercy always comes after the darkness of sin. God's deliverance always comes when it's darkest. Because if it wasn't dark, if we weren't filled with despair, we would have no appreciation for what God does when he delivers us from our trials. We would simply say, like the man trapped upon the roof, and you've probably heard this one, uh, oh Lord, please deliver me from this. And then a boat comes by. No, 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 I'm waiting on the Lord. Oh Lord, please send help. Uh, and then a helicopter comes by. No, 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 I'm waiting on the Lord to deliver me. The Lord will send deliverance. And if we didn't have the despair, if we didn't have the despair, we would say, oh, never mind, Lord, I've got it figured out. I can handle this one. I've got it. When we come to the end of our rope and we can't even have the strength to tie a knot by which to hang on, it's at that moment when we are weakest and when God is the strongest in Christ and when we don't tie the knot because what happens is that Christ sustains us. He gives us ground to stand upon so that we can hang on to the rope as he sustains us from beneath. Which is why it brings us to the third and final point, which is the psalmist calling upon God. In other words, where do you go when there's nowhere else to turn but to the Lord? And so I think in, in many respects, the psalmist has been talking to himself and remembering the past. But in the end, 
he ultimately looks outside of himself to the Lord. Instead of lamenting the persecution that he's suffering, he specifically asks God, remedy this situation. Vindicate me, O God, he says, verse 1 of Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Lord, there's nowhere else to go. I'm turning to you. And not only does he cry out, vindicate me from these detractors who are persecuting me, who are ridiculing me, saying, where is your God? He's saying, deliver me from them. But notice what he says in verses 3 and 4. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So what he's saying is he's saying, give me wisdom. Shine your light upon my situation so that I can understand what it is that you're doing. Shine the light of your mercy and grace so that you would fill me with hope. Shine the light of your truth so that I would learn to see the whole of my life in the the light of the cross of Christ. You know, so often what happens as we find ourselves in despair is that we don't turn to God in prayer and we don't ask him to shine his revelatory light upon our path so that we can discern what path is best. How do we respond? But this is precisely what the psalmist does. He says, shine the light of your truth upon my life so that I can clearly see, so that I can enter joyfully into your presence to worship you. How often do we allow ourselves to wallow in our despair, to continue to look within, only to have ourselves to implode, to collapse in upon ourselves. But notice here that the psalmist does not collapse in upon himself, but rather he looks out, he reaches out, he cries out to God. And so in this case, in Christ, God has shown his abundant light upon our paths, the paths of our lives, and we have to continually look to Christ so that we can walk in the light of the truth that he shines upon us. And it's in the light of the gospel of Christ that we have to pray for strength, for the desire and the ability to seek God in the midst of our despair, that we would not cave in to our despair, that we would seek God at the altar of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, that we would seek Christ through the means of grace, through corporate worship with God's people each and every Lord's Day, that he would fill our hearts with thanksgiving and praise even as we find ourselves seemingly drowning in the midst of our despair. I think it's in all of this that the Apostle Paul himself teaches us to rejoice in the midst of our despair. He writes in Romans 5, verses 3 and following, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given unto us. The only way that we can learn to trust Christ more 
is if we come to the end of ourselves so that we decrease and he increases so that rather than relying upon self, we turn to the only one to whom we can, which is God in Christ through the Spirit. This is where we have to recognize, beloved in Christ, this important truth that I think that is often far from our hearts, although perhaps it is somewhere in our minds, is that we think that the gospel is simply for the entry point to the Christian life. The gospel is about getting saved. It certainly is that. But it's more than simply getting in. It's not that God says, here's the gospel, now you're in, good luck. Rather, it's here's the gospel, now you're in, and now rest in the power of the gospel for every single moment of your life until God calls us home. The gospel isn't just for the entry point for the Christian life. It's for every single moment thereafter. We need the gospel moment by moment, day by day. So, beloved in Christ, if we find ourselves in despair... Remember that the psalmist, I think, in many ways is just like us. His suffering was great, and he certainly wrestled with despair. He thirsted for God. He looked within. Why, O oh my soul, are you cast down within me? Why are you in turmoil? And he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Notice that the psalmist repeats this refrain Three times. It's as if he is saying, the perfect answer to my despair is your faithfulness, O God. And he tells himself, hope in God, he will not disappoint. And he says with great confidence, I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. For each one of the three cries, why are you in despair? He says in response, hope in God. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. May that be our cry. May that be our hope that we would seek Christ in the midst of our despair and that with the psalmist we could say, hope in Christ, for we shall again praise him, our salvation and our God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, sometimes... Our trials can be great. Or sometimes, Lord, even in the face of the smallest of trials, we begin to panic. Forgive us, Lord, for being short-sighted and for at times allowing the waters of despair seemingly to, to drown us. Help us to know, O oh Lord, that the waters that are seemingly keeping us under are your breakers. They're your waterfalls. It's your flood. And that in the midst of the flood, O oh Lord, you are calling us and drawing us closer to yourself. Rather than, O oh Lord, sinking beneath the waters of despair, 
Just as Peter looked to your son in the midst of the stormy waters and was able to walk on water, we pray, O Lord, that you would give us great faith and hope continually that we would be able to look to Christ in the midst of our despair so that we would not sink beneath the waters, but rather we would walk over them. That you would give us great faith and hope, knowing that your faithfulness in the past is a promise for the future and for the present. That we would rest beneath the mighty wings of Christ And with the light of his cross shining upon us, that we would know that in our despair, you are conforming us to your image, that you are purging us of our self-reliance, and that you are teaching us to rest in you. Oh, Father, grant this prayer, not only so that we would have peace in the midst of our storms, but, oh, Lord, so that we would bring you glory. Give us faithfulness and fill our hearts with hope until you call us home or until Christ's return. And in this way, we pray that you would bring glory to your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.